Heavenly Father, it's troubling to read passages of Scripture like those found in the early chapters of Hosea, to read about the wickedness of people that had, at least on some level and in some way, outwardly professed to be your people. And Lord, we see, if we look at them and their example, I think we easily can see ourselves. Our own tendency to sin and to stubbornly go our own way. And I pray that this morning you would confront us with the truth of your word. Challenge us. Lord, I pray that you would use me as I speak. Not to take away or distract from the truth of your word, but simply to expose it. That your word and the power of your Holy Spirit would discern our hearts, expose our sin, and bring healing through repentance and forgiveness. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 81 has a brief heading to the chief musician on an instrument of Gath, a psalm of Asaph. Uh, If you recall in our studies, we've talked about this before, but I realize that some of you haven't been here through this whole study and some of you are guests, and uh, so I want to make it uh, repeated. But um, we have really, as we've considered the psalms, I I, I do believe these headings are uh, a part of Scripture uh, or to be taken that way. And I believe that the musical notations belong as a postscript so that those two lines to the chief musician on an instrument of Gath really rightly belong to Psalm 80. And so Psalm 81 simply has the heading of Psalm of Asaph. There is no postscript to this psalm. Some of the, some of the times when we read to the psalms, we look at the heading and there's historical data there and it tells us the setting of the psalm. We don't find that here. But as we look at this psalm, and as we read down through this psalm, we find that there are some indications here. This psalm was intended for a special purpose. Look with me at these opening verses. The psalmist Asaph, again, whether this was the the man appointed by David or a descendant of his, I would say probably likely a descendant of his. But he writes this, Sing aloud to God our strength. Make a joyful shout to the God of Jacob. Raise a song and strike the timbrel, the pleasant harp with the lute. Blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon, at the full moon on our solemn feast day. For this is a statute for Israel, a law of the God of Jacob. This he established in Joseph as a testimony when he went throughout the land of Egypt, where I heard a language I did not understand. The psalmist here begins, and we'll read the rest of the psalm as we go, but he begins here in these opening verses by calling the people to worship. But if you notice, interestingly, on verse 3, he he, he says something kind of unusual. He says, blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon. The trumpet here is the word shofar. It's a ram's horn. Normally, not blown as a part of worship, but blown as a signal. Used in the military, but also used 
in Israel uh, at, at certain appointed times to signal the beginning of a festival or some uh, significant event. The time of the new moon. If we, have time, if we had time today, we'd go back and we could look at uh, the descriptions of the festivals in Israel. But uh, there was one very significant new moon at which, uh, the, uh, at which the trumpet would be blown. And it was the new moon of the seventh month. The seventh month was significant. Um, the new moon, well, let me just back up. The, the monthly calendar of the Jewish people is a lunar calendar. All right? Our calendar is not a lunar calendar. Our calendar is based on the sun. But their calendar was based on the moon, which meant that it was a very, uh, it was, it, that, that every month followed the same pattern. The first day of the month was the new moon. The middle day of the month, the 15th day of the month, then was the day of the full moon. Every month it was like that because their calendar was based on the moon. And so in the seventh month, they would blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon. Now on the 10th day of the seventh month was a very significant day. We call it the Day of Atonement in English, Yom Kippur in Hebrew. It was the one day a year when the priests would offer sacrifice for all the people for the cleansing of their sin. But on the 15th day of that seventh month, another important festival began. The blowing of the trumpet. And the Feast of Tabernacles would commence. And for seven days, the people would live in booths that they built outside of their homes, built out of branches. And they would live in them for seven days. And the whole purpose of the festival of the Feast of Tabernacles was to remind the people of the time in which their ancestors had wandered in the wilderness and had dwelt in tents, had dwelt in temporary shelters. And so they made a temporary shelter so that they could remember what their ancestors had done in the wilderness. And each day of that, of that feast, each day of that week, they would sing certain psalms. And Psalm 81 was, as far as we can tell based on what the, the rabbis say, uh, it was sung by the Jewish people on the fifth day of the Feast of Tabernacles. This was a song that was sung every year on that appointed day during that feast, when the people were remembering what had happened and how God had worked and what they had experienced as a people in the wilderness. And so, when he says here in verse 3, to blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon and at the full moon on our solemn feast day, it seems that he's talking here about this Feast of Tabernacles. This psalm appears to have been written for that purpose. To remind the people to, to, to be a part of that celebration. Now, we're going to get into what the celebration was and the significance of it here as we go a little bit. Um, but I want to say one more thing, just as far as a way of kind of background. Um, it's not an accident that Psalm 81 occurs where it occurs. I've said this before as we go through the Psalms. Um, 
There was an editor of the Psalms. Who he was, we don't know for sure. All right? Some believe maybe it was Ezra. Ezra was very instrumental in restoring the worship of God in Israel after the exile, when they came back. And so it's, it's, it's possible, maybe even likely, that Ezra is the one who compiled and arranged the Psalms in the order that we have them. But whoever it was, he was putting this psalm here on purpose. Okay, this psalm was, was significant for the Feast of Tabernacles, but it's also significant because Psalm 79 and Psalm 80 both ask very important questions of the Lord. Psalm 79, verse 5 asks, How long, Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? The people in Psalm 79 had suffered the invasion of the Babylonians who had destroyed the temple and had taken the people captive. And they were crying out, Lord, how long is your anger going to continue to burn? In Psalm 80, Again, possibly written after the invasion by the Assyrians, which is actually before the, 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 the invasion that Psalm 79 would speak of. But Psalm 80 asks the same question. Verse 4, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? These Psalms ask these questions, but you know what we don't find in Psalm 79 and we don't find in Psalm 80? We don't ever find an answer from God. The psalmist ends in each of those psalms trusting in God, believing in God, hoping in God. But we don't ever hear the voice of God. Psalm 81 is different. And so I believe the editor here, when he put this psalm in place, he put it here because here's the response. You see, the people in Psalm 79 and 80 who had been taken away captive and their lives had been destroyed, and they cried out, Lord, how long? How long is this going to continue? How long are you going to pour out your anger? How long are you going to be angry with us? How long are you not going to hear our prayers? And the the compiler here of the Psalms, I imagine him thinking about the people who would read the Psalms and thinking after they read Psalm 79 and that question, then they read Psalm 80 and that question, they need to hear the voice of God. And so we have Psalm 81. Because beginning in verse 6 and going really down through the end of the psalm, at least to verse 15, we have God speaking. Then we're going to hear the voice of God. So in a way, Psalm 81 is the answer to the questions from Psalm 79 and 80. The psalmist ended those psalms by saying, we're going to trust in you. And we're going to be faithful to you when you do your great work. I mean, Psalm 80, we looked at, has all this, 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 this uh, it ends with the, the, the looking ahead to the Messiah who's going to come and going to bring the, 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 the spiritual transformation of the people and they'll be faithful to God. And so there's hopefulness, but it's the psalmist expressing hope in what he knows to be true about God. But here we have God actually speaking. It's a tremendous opportunity for us to hear His voice. We want to ask, how long? Lord, how long will we have to endure this suffering? How long will we have to continue uh, to, 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 uh, to deal with all of the trials and the, 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 the pain and the suffering and the loss and the despair? Lord, how long will you be angry? 
We ask the question. We need to consider the answer. So I want to look at that, and I want to kind of try and bring both of those things into view here. The Feast of Tabernacles is significant, and it reminds us of something important. But then it's also here we see, we'll see we see an answer from God, and I want to kind of try and bring both of those things out as we study this together. We already read those first five verses. Sing aloud to God our strength. Make a joyful shout to the God of Jacob. The psalmist here, beginning this psalm just by, by, by instructing the people to sing, to shout. The, the, the words there in verse 1 are, are have, have really the idea of making noise. It's, it's loud. It's dramatic. This isn't some kind of, you know, peaceful, we're just going to put on some background music kind of a thing. This is, this is dramatic. The people are to shout with excitement. They're going to sing loudly. There's a great deal of noise. So we we picture here the people of Israel being called to gather together. And then as one to lift their voices. Thousands and thousands of voices all in unison shouting and singing praise to God. Then verse 2. It's accompanied with music. So they're shouting and they're singing with their voices. And then verse 2, we have the instruments which are all in play. And he lists several instruments here. The timbrel, the tambourine that the women of Israel would often play as they danced and sang in worship of the Lord. The harp and the lute. These instruments that were all being to be used. And so we have kind of... Uh, again, it's this kind of balance or this mixture between the spontaneous, the shouts of joy, and then the, the, the practiced and the, prepra- the prepared instrumental music. And so there's kind of both things in view. And the people are called. It's a day of, of, of rejoicing and, and worship. And then they're to blow the trumpet on these appointed days, verse 3. But, but this is what's really interesting to me. Look at verse 4. See, why sing? Why praise? Why offer songs and music and joyous shouts? Well, to paraphrase, because God said so. Verse 4. You know, it's like when, when, as a parent, you know, and your kid comes to you and says, well, why? Why do I have to do that? Well, because I said so. That's, that's what we get here in verse 4. Because the Lord said so. This is a statute for Israel, a law of the God of Jacob. What's he talking about here? Well, this is what God said they were supposed to do. Guess what? God said, on this day of the year, you're going to blow the trumpet. Everyone's going to gather. You're going to sing and worship. This is what you're going to do. Now, do you see any problem with that? I mean, what if the guy who's supposed to blow the trumpet had had a really bad night the night before and just doesn't feel like blowing the trumpet? What if, he, you know, what if the people are, are really struggling with something? What if their, their life is really not in a very good place? What if their, their, you know, their marriage is, is struggling or their children are upset with them or, or they've got some physical problem or whatever it is? What if there's something going on and they just don't feel like it? Well, God said, today's the day to blow the trumpet. You can't wait till tomorrow. You can't wait till the 16th day of the month because it's not a full moon anymore. It's on the full moon you blow the trumpet. This is the appointed time. Why? Because God said so. Now, it may seem odd for us to think about that. 
I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't worship that is spontaneous and from the heart be better than worship that is scripted and at the appointed time? I mean, on some level, we kind of think that way, don't we? I mean, if we, it's better to worship God just from the heart. It's just, it's overflowing. Then if we have to worship Him now, you know, what if I don't feel like worshiping Him now? What if I feel like worshiping Him later? Or I felt like worshiping Him last night, but not this morning? God doesn't give that option here. I think it's important for us to recognize something. There's a time to worship. There's a time to worship. And it's not based on our schedule. And it's not based on our feelings or our circumstances. The time to worship is a time appointed by God. Now, I recognize, I do, that we are not uh, uh, Israel in the Old Testament. Fully recognize that. All right? I, 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 I do Willingly, I know this may be a shock to some people, but I willingly accept the label of a dispensationalist. It's a long word. One of the things it means is that I don't think that the church and Israel are the same thing. Right? So I recognize we're not Israel. We're the church. Totally different. Got that. We have our own instructions from God. However, so I do realize that means that we don't have to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. By the way, this year, uh, it's uh, September 23rd, I believe, is when the uh, Feast of Tabernacles starts. Uh, and it ends September 30th this year. So that's uh, when that would fit in our calendar. But besides the point, we don't necessarily have to celebrate this. We're not in Israel. This is not a command given to us. However, the principle is valid. Right? That we are instructed to worship the Lord. And we don't worship based on how we feel or the circumstances that we choose. We worship based on what God instructs in His Word. And you know one thing, there's a principle here from the New Testament Scriptures that tell us that we are not to forsake those times when the people of God are gathering together to worship. That principle is very clear, Hebrews chapter 10. That when the people of God gather to worship, we are to be there. To be a part of that. And we're not to forsake that. You say, well, what if I don't feel like worshiping on that day? I don't think that ever enters into the equation. What if Sunday morning is just not a good time for me? Well, what if uh, the day of the new moon just wasn't a very good time for them? It's not an option. Why should we gather and sing and praise and and play the instruments and make music? Why? For this is a statute. This is the law of God. This is what God commands. This is what God expects. And as His people, we are to obey. And so we have this same principle. Not the same festival days. I get that. Not the same calendar. But we have the same principle. That we are to gather with God's people to worship Him and there's an appointed time. Now, this is a little rabbit trail. I don't want to get down too far. But does that mean that as a church, we couldn't say, hey, you know, we're going to gather on Saturday night? No. There's no, you know, we're going to gather on Monday morning. No, oh, whatever. 
again, we already said, why do we, why do we gather on Sunday? Because we recognize and honor the resurrection of Christ. That's what we call it the Lord's Day. That's what, by the way, that, that's a term that comes from Scripture, by the way. I didn't, that's not our making it up. John calls it the Lord's Day, Revelation chapter 1. We, we worship on the Lord's Day, but I would just say this. When the people of the church are, to gather, are gathering together, we should make a commitment to be there. That's what the principle is. It's not so much an issue of when they do it. It's an issue of whenever they do it, we should be there. We should make that commitment to be a part of the worship of God with His people. Why? Because He said so. Not because we feel like it or it's convenient for us. And so we ought to make that an effort. We ought to make that a commitment. That we're going to be with the people of God to worship God. Because there's a time to worship. This is the law that he commanded. And notice verse 5. He established this in Joseph as a testimony. When did he establish this? Well, notice he says, when he went throughout the land of Egypt. So this goes all the way back. This goes all the way back to the Exodus. See, remember the Feast of Tabernacles is to remember the wilderness wandering when they left Egypt. So right here we're pointing, the the psalmist is taking us back. And he says, this is the appointed day. This is the appointed time to worship. And God appointed and established this all the way back when he called us out of Egypt. So he's talking about here the establishment of God's law. Pointing us back to that time when God laid out His expectations for the children of Israel. And so this is the time to worship. It's interesting that he says it was established as a testimony, a witness. This appointed feast day is established as a witness and a testimony. What was the purpose of this Feast of Tabernacles? Why were they supposed to do this every year? Why were they supposed to blow the trumpet on the new moon and then again on the 15th day of the month, the full moon, and then spend seven days in their tents? Why were they supposed to do that? Well, we won't take time to go back to Psalm 78, but we could look at all 72 verses of Psalm 78 because they drive one point home, and that is that it is up to the adults to teach the children. It's up to one generation to teach the next generation about what God has done. This is a witness that was established. God said, you're going to do this every year. You're going to do this as a reminder, as a testimony, so that what I have done is displayed and spoken of to the next generation forever. So they'll know who I am and what I've done. This was what God established. This is what God appointed. He expected them to do it, to obey. And for many of the same reasons, we need to be committed to worshiping God regularly with His people for the same purpose. It's a witness. It's a testimony. It's a testimony to our families. It's a testimony to our children and our grandchildren. It's a testimony to our neighbors that they know where we're going to be. When our church is gathering, we're going to be there. We're not going to just take off because, yeah, whatever. Something comes up, more convenient to be out. I didn't have a good night last night. I don't really feel like going, whatever. No, we're committed to being with God's people in worship. 
And it's a testimony that God has established. Now, I want to continue because all of this is, is calling the people to this feast of tabernacles, calling them to worship God and to be mindful now to look back to the Exodus and think what God did. And this serves a very, very important purpose. Let's consider here, look at verse 6. Look at, now we hear from God. God begins to speak and He begins to tell what He did. I removed His shoulder from the burden. His hands were freed from the baskets. Remember, Remember what, Israel, what, what, what the Israelites endured when they were in Egypt. They were slaves. They were the ones carrying the burdens. They were the ones holding the baskets. We have kind of in view here the, the picture of them, of them when they were making bricks and having to haul all of the, 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 the bricks and having to do all the construction and all the work for the Pharaoh. And, and, and they, were, they were manual laborers. And God says, I removed the burden. I took the baskets out of their hands. <laughs> they were slaves. They had all this forced labor and I removed it. Notice verse 7. You called in trouble and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Salah. This is where this thing gets really interesting. See, the people of Israel, they were enslaved in Egypt. They were in trouble. They were suffering. They were in distress. The book of uh, of Exodus tells us that their groanings and their cries reached into heaven. And God heard with His ears the groaning and the cries of His people as they were sorely distressed in their bondage and and their forced labor. God heard them. The people called out. He says, you called in trouble and I delivered you. What what a tremendous, a tremendous message, right? When we pray for deliverance, God saves. Amen? Not even one? Holy cow. That was a, one. Okay, I'm sorry. I got one amen. All right. I don't, I don't usually ask for amens. That's right. <clears throat> Now, see, there's more to it than that, though. This is the thing that's really fascinating. See, God says, you called, and I answered you. I delivered you. But I did more than just remove the burdens. See, I think this is where this gets a little bit tricky, because sometimes we want to think that that this is how it works. We're in a bad spot. We need help. We cry out to God. God rescues us from the bad spot. Everything is good. Something missing from that? Just a little something, right? He says, I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. That is really fascinating. By the way, I think it's a reference to Mount Sinai. Remember when when God met uh, Moses on Mount Sinai and the mountain uh, was covered with a cloud and there was lightning and the rumble of thunder and the people uh, were, were frightened This was how God delivered them, right? He took away the burdens, yay! And they took them to Mount Sinai and there was this secret place of thunder 
God showing Himself in this cloud and the the glory of the cloud and the majesty and the power of the thunder that, that shook the mountain. I mean, can you imagine thunder that shakes a mountain? I've been in some strong thunderstorms. I don't, and I've felt some thunder that was pretty powerful. I don't think I've ever felt anything that I would say shook the mountain. That was that power. I mean, this was a display of God's power. It was awesome and terrifying. But the third line there is really important. I tested you. I tested you. God put them to the test. The waters of Meribah. Remember, when the people got there to the wilderness and they didn't have any water and they were you know, millions of people, Right? Somewhere between you know, one and three million people in the middle of the wilderness. Going to say, what are we going to drink? Where are we going to get water? And the people began to complain and they began to, to, to murmur against Moses and Aaron. And remember what God did? He, he sent Moses with the staff and says, go to that rock over there and strike the, staff with the, ro- or strike the rock with your rod and water is going to come gushing out. And a, and a river of water came out and it, and, it, and it watered the people and they had water. He realized that was a test. What's more, he realized that people failed. That, that's what the psalmist is getting at here. He says, you know, you prayed and asked for God to save you. And God said, okay, I'll remove the burden. I'm going to bring you out here in the wilderness to this mountain. I'm going to display my power. And I'm going to put you to the test. And so the psalmist moves us from a time of worship now to a time to remember. He's challenging the people as they gather in the Feast of Tabernacles to remember what God did. Yes, He delivered them from Egypt. He he removed the burden, but He brought them into the wilderness to put them to the test. Look at verse 8. Here God continues to speak. Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you. O Israel, if you will listen to me. Hear God pleading. This is what He said to them in the wilderness. When He he saved them, this is what He said to them. There, He said, shall be no foreign God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. What a promise from God. Here is God. He has brought these people out of Egypt. He removed the burden. He brought them to this place, this place where He shows His power. He puts them to the test and He says this to them. Here's the test. I am Yahweh, your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. All you have to do is turn to me with an open mouth and I will fill it. What's God saying to them? Don't look to that God or that God. Don't look to your job. Don't look to your skills. Don't look to your resources. Don't look anywhere else but to me. I am your God. I will give you everything you need. Just look at me. Open your mouth and I'll fill it. What a promise. What a test. Will the people believe God? Will the people reject all of the other gods? The Canaanites worshipped 
many gods, but predominantly Baal was the god they worshipped. Baal was a fertility god. They believed that Baal provided the spring rains, which caused the crops to grow, and so they worshipped Baal, thinking that by worshipping him, he would be pleased and would send the rain. And the worship was immoral and corrupt and perverse to the point where I won't even describe it for you, but it was beyond anything that could be considered righteous and holy. You see, the temptation was, hey, if you want to be blessed materially, you've got to worship Baal. He's the one that sends the rain. And God says, no, 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 no. There are no other gods. Just me. I brought you out of Egypt. Look to me. I will fill your mouth. But there's that temptation to trust in something else. To trust in the Baal. To trust in the Ashtoreth. To trust in Moloch. To trust in some other god. Again, same temptation facing us today. To trust in something else. Someone else. Look at how the people handled the test. Verse 11. But my people would not heed my voice. And listen to this, Israel would have none of me. That's interesting, two lines there. Remember, poetry in Hebrew is based mostly on parallelism. Parallelism is the key factor. So lines like this are intended to be seen parallel. The first line is explained by the second, or reflected, or balanced, or somehow uh, illustrated by the second. So he says, my people would not hear or heed my voice. In other words, they they wouldn't obey what God said. And notice what that constituted in the second half of the verse. They would have none of me. Do you understand why Jesus says in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, the one that loves me is the one that keeps my commandments? Because if you won't heed the voice of God, you're not taking God. You're not accepting God. When the Israelites wouldn't heed the voice of God, it was them essentially saying to God, God, we will not have you. That's what they were saying when they wouldn't listen, when they wouldn't obey. And then notice what happens in verse 12. This is a sad verse. So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. They didn't want to hear my voice. They didn't want anything to do with me, God says. So I said, okay. You have a stubborn heart. You can have it. You have your own counsel, your own wisdom. Fine. You can follow it. Fine. You know, I said last week that... uh, the way the psalm began, or I guess it was two weeks ago, the way the psalm began, the psalmist was complaining that God, who was the shepherd, was acting not like a shepherd because he was letting the one go. Remember, you know, the 99 have come into the, the fold and instead of going and following and finding that one, he was just letting them go. Guess what? You want to know why? It's right here. See, they want to ask questions of God. God's given them answers. You want to know why God doesn't want to hear their prayers? You want to know why God is angry with them? Just look right here. 
God said, you know what? You, you don't want to hear me? You don't want to listen to my voice? Fine. You can have your stubborn heart. You can have your own counsel. And wherever that takes you. There's a parallel to this in the New Testament book of Romans, chapter 1. Paul says that as, as humankind, we have done this to God. Paul says we have seen the invisible things of God that are clear in the creation, and yet, Paul says we don't glorify God, we're not thankful. Instead, he says become darkened in our minds. And three times in that, in that chapter, Romans chapter 1, he says that God gave them up or God gave them over. Gave them over to the lusts and the desires of their flesh that are unclean. He gave them over to depraved thinking. This is the judgment of God. The Israelites in the wilderness, God gave them this law, said, listen, here's first commandment, first one, first one, really important, got to listen, there's only one God, it's me, not anybody else. Worship me, I'll satisfy all your needs, just worship me. And while Moses is on the mountain getting the commandments, what are the people doing with Aaron? Make us a golden calf. We'll bow down to the calf that, 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 that saved us from Egypt. They couldn't, even, they couldn't even get the tablets down from the mountain before they were violating the first commandment that God gave them. They failed. They failed the test. And what did God do? What happened to that generation in the wilderness that failed this test? All of them died, except two men and the, the young people who were under the age of 20. You can do the calculation on that. Obviously, we don't know the exact number of people. I did some calculations this week on it. Depending on how many Israelites there were, that means there were somewhere between 100 and 190 deaths per day in the camp for 40 years. Okay. Think about that. Now, that's not counting some of the judgment that, that killed larger numbers of people at one time. But think about that. That means there had to be a group of people in Israel, a group of men whose job was to bury the dead. They'd get up in the morning, they'd wake up in the morning, have their breakfast, they're sipping a cup of coffee, and they hear a scream. They grab their shovels. Somebody found a loved one dead in the tent. They take him outside, they bury him out in the desert. They walk back into camp and they hear another scream. Forty years. More than 100 a day? I mean, this is God's judgment. Why? Because they failed the test. Because God said, you, you, you wanted me to deliver you. See, you wanted salvation from Egypt. But this is about more than just me removing the burden. See, I, I brought you out, and I sat you down, and I said, this is what I expect. I'm going to put you to the test. And you failed the test. And so the psalmist is saying to these people as they gather to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, remember that generation in the wilderness, they failed the test. Remember. By the way, I think that there's a real parallel here and a real challenge for the people of Israel who were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. This is why you do this every year and you tell your children about this every year. Why? Because they need to realize that just because these Israelites prayed and said, God, save us from the Egyptians, didn't mean those people were committed to worshiping God. See, when they found out the whole story, when they found out that 
Wait, you mean to be a Christian? To me, you mean I have to follow God? You mean I have to obey? You mean there's like expectations? I, I, I gotta, I gotta give my life to Him, really? It's kind of like the you know the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, "What do I have to do to be saved?" You know, I've, I've kept a law. I've done all these good things ever since I was. I, I don't, I'm good. I've done all these religious things. And Jesus says, "No, you're still trusting in your money. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and follow me." I just wanted to be saved. I didn't want to have all this commitment. You see, that's the difference. They wanted to be saved. When God said, okay, but here's, here's what I expect of you. Most of an entire generation said, no thanks. And they died in the wilderness. And so now the people are called to gather together and remind their children that just because you prayed and said, God, I don't want to be in Egypt anymore. God, Get me out of Egypt. It didn't mean that they actually were willing to walk with God, willing to be obedient, willing to trust Him. They needed to examine themselves to make sure that their own hearts weren't stubborn and rebellious and wicked. What's more, Maybe, maybe I should put it a different way. They need to examine themselves and realize that they were just as stubborn and rebellious and wicked as that generation. But that's where we have the last portion here, verse 13. God here still speaking. Oh, that my people would listen to me. That Israel would walk in my ways. This is the heart of God. He desires that his people would hear and listen and walk in obedience to his way. I mean, is it possible that in the very next verse, in verse 12, he said, I gave them over to their stubborn hearts. And then he says, oh, I wish they would walk in my ways. This is the compassionate heart of God. Yes, he judges, but, but his heart is not loving destruction. His heart is that he could save these people if they would be obedient. Look at what he says would happen to them. Verse 14, I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord would pretend submission to him, but their fate would endure forever. He would have fed them also with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock I would have satisfied you. Psalm 80, Psalm 79, they ask how long? Here's the answer. Until you repent. That's the answer. It's time to repent. That's the answer. Realize that your heart is wicked and corrupt, just like those Israelites in the wilderness who, yeah, they wanted to escape from the bondage of Egypt, but when it came to actually knowing and loving and obeying God, they weren't, they they just weren't sure about that whole, it was just, you know, that was asking too much. Price tag was too high. They couldn't give themselves to him. It was just too much. And he says, you need to see it. You need to recognize their failure. You need to see it in yourself. And you need to repent. So you can cry out and say, Lord, how long? How long are our enemies going to defeat us? How long are you going to be angry with us? How long are you going to keep us in bondage? And God says, I'm waiting for you to repent. If you would listen to me, if you'd walk in my ways, 
I would already defeat your enemies. You see, the issue there is the people, stubborn, refusing to repent. And the psalmist here very graciously, as he, as he shares the word of God, that God's desire is not that men and women would be destroyed. God's desire is not that, 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 that people would be cast into hell. His desire is that men and women would turn, would listen to his voice. That they would be obedient to his ways. He says, I would have fed them with the finest of wheat, honey from the rock. He, he planned to take Israel into the land that flowed with milk and honey, and yet these people refused. And because they refused, they missed out. They never got the satisfaction they desired. And the same thing is true for us today. There are a lot of people who've walked down a church aisle, who've prayed a prayer, who've said, Lord, save me, but they have no desire to, to know God, no desire to walk with Him. When they see the cost of being a follower, they say, no, sorry, that's not really for me. And they turn back. The only hope that those people have, or the only expectation that they can have, is an expectation of judgment. But at the same time, God is holding out His hands, saying, oh, that my people would listen to Paul says something similar. He's actually quoting from Isaiah in Romans chapter 10 when, he's, when he, he says, when he quotes God as saying, all day long I have held up my hands to this disobedient people. This is the, this is the posture that, that we see of God. He's holding out his hands. He's ready and willing to accept you, to forgive you, to embrace you, to, 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 to honor you, to bless you. He says, open your mouth wide. Turn to me. I'll fill it. And yet, we continue in our rebellion. I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you have prayed a prayer at some point, asked, called out when you were in trouble and asked for deliverance from God. Israelites did that. It got them out of Egypt, but then they died in the wilderness because their hearts were stubborn and rebellious. They didn't turn to the Lord. Won't you turn to Him today? Won't you turn to Him? He's holding out His hands. He put His people to the test, but we have the privilege today of examining our own lives, putting ourselves to the test, finding that we have in us the same rebellion, the same stubbornness. God is in the same posture of mercy and compassion toward us today. Won't you turn to Him in repentance? We celebrated the resurrection last week, Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins and rising again. He did that so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins, have eternal life. Will you turn to Him and receive life?
Or will you continue to go your own way? Maybe calling out to God when you get in trouble and need some help. But not really turning to him. That's what many people do. Jesus said the way is broad and it leads to destruction. Many go that way. But it's narrow. The way that leads to life. Few are there that find it. If you turn to him, he'll give you life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you graciously gave your people Israel this psalm as a reminder to them of what you had done in the wilderness. Not just your miraculous salvation, but also the testing. The fact that it exposes our hearts. And Lord, we have the same truth today. We're sinners. We're sinners who are rebelling against you. And unless, unless we turn to you, cry out for mercy and pardon, we will be destroyed. I pray that each person who's here today would consider their own life, consider their own heart. Have they trusted in you? Have they, have they turned to you for mercy? If they haven't, I pray that today they would. Today they would trust in Jesus Christ who alone can save them. Trust in the the mercy and love of God. Rather than trusting in all the gods and all the other things we can follow after. Lord, even as believers here today, I pray that you'd help us to remember and to continue to examine ourselves to see whether or not we are still walking with you, whether or not we are still listening to your voice. Help us not to grow deaf to you, not to grow hard-hearted and calloused. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.